Okay, so the sermon is exciting tonight, guys. Uh, this, the title is, I think we have it, The Christian and Sex. Yep, here it is. Uh, it's kind of nice that your parents aren't here. You know, we could just like talk about it. Um, the Christian and Sex. So if you were here last week, we are in a little three-week series through Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And if you, if you didn't hear, I'll just recap. In these three chapters, there are three themes. The thing is, it's kind of complicated because it weaves in and out constantly, like 10 verses on this, then it it goes through uh, culture, sex, and justice are the three themes of Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. So rather than just 18, we're going to do 18, 19, 20 like we normally do, we're going through the third of the verses on culture, which was last week. Today, we're going through a third of the verses which are on sex, and then next week is a third of the rest of the verses which are on uh, justice. And I didn't... Uh, I forgot to give the PowerPoint people my notes, but if you want to know the specific verses for tonight, it's Leviticus 18, and it's verses 6 through 20, and then also in chapter 18, it's 22 and 23, and then actually nothing in 19, and then it's Leviticus 20, 10 through 22, Leviticus 20, 10 through 22. So those are the verses we're about to read. I'll read it all, like, say where we are. Um, So we will read these verses. It's like, I don't know, 30 or so verses, and then we will pray. It's still a little echoey. I don't know why. Maybe just turn it down. I'll talk loud. Sorry, that was Mike in the beard. Okay, here we go. Leviticus, yeah, that's nice. Leviticus 18, verse 6. This is going to be pretty ridiculous, honestly, guys. Your mind's going to be a little bit blown, but it's okay. You're also like, really, God? You had to tell us this, but it's okay. Here we go. Leviticus 18. Verse 6 through 20 says this. I'm reading out of the ESV. God is speaking and he says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Uh, that's, there's a lot of euphemisms because God's like, all right, I'll you. So uncover nakedness, we kind of get what that means. Here we go. Verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister." You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she's your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. And then skip ahead to 22 and 23. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
and you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Now jump ahead to chapter 20, verse 10. And we're going to read through verse 22. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. And he and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people." You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. Wow. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. Verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where you are bringing you to live may not vomit you out. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that is true. Jesus, thank you that, um, and you're willing to talk about like uncomfortable things. Um, because you're God, and, and you're, you want to help us. You want to lead us to life. So we ask that you would, um, you would open our eyes to what your design is for sex, God. Help us. Um, I pray for those who even right now in their seat are like really uncomfortable or maybe full of shame or cannot stop thinking about specific sin that was committed against them. God, would you just bring peace? Would your spirit be in this room as we wrestle with your word? Lord, those of us who may be flirting with sin or who are like in sin, would your spirit just bring the conviction of God that leads us to repentance and to life? And above all, we just ask that you would show us Jesus tonight. You'd show us Jesus somehow in these verses. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in modern history, where you're, you're living right now, you're living in for sure, as far as modern history goes, the most, like, if not one of the most, like, radically sexualized culture there's ever been. That, like, Rome was pretty gnarly, but in modern history, you're for sure living in one of the most, if not the most, sexualized culture. Just in general, like, the West, 
which includes like Europe and us, like we're, we are so sexualized. You've, we're just born into seeing things that are like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, you guys maybe know a little bit of history. We kind of were a reaction to the Victorians, which was like in Britain, because they were super proper and they like didn't talk about it at all. And uh, so we're like, screw that. We're Americans and we're going to talk about it. And so that's kind of where we're at. Um, and when, okay, when we're talking and thinking and wrestling with sex and, and how do we uh, think about it, how should we do it, and specifically as Christians, the Christian in sex, here's the deal. There's two extremes, and you are in one of them right now. That's just true. Uh, and I, to sum it up, a pastor said this um, a while ago. You're, there's two extremes. We like to think of sex and humanity as we're either angels or we're animals, okay? Those are the extremes. We all tend to fall into one of those. We tend to think of ourselves as we're supposed to be like angels, or we just tend to think of ourselves like, no, we're supposed to be like animals, okay? So here's angel culture. Bodies are gross. Bodies are nasty. Why do we have bodies? Like, and you know what? So sex is gross, and I don't want to think about it, and it's nasty. Uh, There's like, that comes from a thing called Gnosticism, which essentially thinks like the physical material, where it's like, where it's evil, and the main goal of life is to escape it to happiness and bliss. There's some Eastern religions there, and uh, Gnosticism has always been a temptation for Christians, always, always been a temptation. Do you know what? Jesus, just save me so I can get out of here. This world sucks. My body sucks. Everything here sucks. Just get me out, and we forget that when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new, including your body, and you're going to live in a body forever. That's crazy. You're going to live in a body forever. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, which is a little more of our culture, is, hey, we're just humans. We're just animals. Like, what, like, what are you trying to say? Our bodies are everything. My desires are everything. My emotions are everything. In fact, there's so much everything that my identity is is tied up with my desires and my body. That's my identity. It goes no further than my body and the chemicals in me. That is who I am. All my desires are always good and always must be gratified. That's, that's our culture. Uh, it's an animal culture. We, like, there's not a lot of dignity to us. We are simply the same, no offense, as the dog that is in this room. That's just who we are. We may be a little smarter, but at the end of the day, we're just animals. We're just bodies. Um, and to deny your body is to deny who you are. Like, that's the greatest offense, is to deny your body. Um, sadly, uh, those are both wrong and not of the Lord. Uh, we, we, like angels, have souls that are actually immortal. You have a soul right now that will live forever. All of you. In heaven or hell, you have a soul that will never go away. That's crazy. When God created humans, he created them to live forever. That's mind-blowing. So we have souls. Uh, Like God, we have like spirits in us. Like, is there a difference between spirit and soul? That's a weird philosophy question, but we can debate that. Uh, but, But we have souls. Then we also were created with bodies. We have both, and both are good. If you remember when God created everything, he created us in his image, and he said it was good. He made a body. He made the human body and said, it is good. And yet, listen, there's something special to the human body that is different from everything else in creation. There's something different to your body than everything else in creation. You alone 
This is pretty cool. Uh, everything else God created, he, he created with his mouth. It says God spoke and therefore it was. When he made humans, it says he fashioned us from the dirt. So that's kind of cool. We were made with God's hands in some sense. And uh, so there's dignity there. Number two, we were made in his image. Nothing else was made in God's image. So you were made with ultimate dignity from his hands in his image. But what did he choose to make you with? Dirt. So that's a nice, amazing, dignified, and humble view of who you are. You are radically loved and special and in God's image and fashioned by his own hands, and you are dirt. So like, wow, I'm special. And so we tend to, some of you need to hear, listen, you're dirt. Don't think too highly of yourself. Some of you need to hear, hey, you are created and fashioned by the hands of God, and your body and your life matter to him. You, like, you are the crown jewel of his creation, the human body. So, so we're both, we're both. And, and just to say a little, like, uh, the little thing on, like, we're just animals, just in my desires. Listen, you know, the thing that gives you dignity above an animal is you've been given a will. You've, the thing that makes you better than a dog is you have the ability to say no to one of your desires, like animals just don't have that. My dog, if I, there is food in front of him, there is no stop. He will eat it. He has no will apart from like fear that I will spank him hard. Like that's the only thing that's going to stop him. He doesn't have a will to choose. He can't reflect on himself and how life is and how he's doing. So did you know that your ability to say no to your desires is what gives you dignity? Did you know that? Did you know that you're more than just an animal? That you, the ability you have to say, man, I really want to do this thing right now, but I'm able to think about that, identify it, say, no, that wouldn't be good. I would go to jail and not do that. That is what gives you dignity. You're not just an animal. You are special. You have dignity to you. So those are the extremes we fall in. And here's the thing. When, when we think about Christians and sex, uh, like when we just read these two chapters, it's, it's all don't do this, right? That's all we heard. Hey, don't do this, 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 this, this. And then it turned into, and if you do this, you're gonna die. That's pretty much what we just read. Uh, when we, uh, probably a lot of you, when you think about sex in the church, that's what you've been told. Hey, listen, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that's probably, you've probably been told good things, by the way. They're not wrong. Like they'll save your life. Um, but there's more to sex than what not to do, okay? There is more to sex than what not to do. And so here's the kind of the first major point I want us to to hear is before God ever told us what not to do, he tells us what to do, okay? And And before God ever tells us what not to do with sex, he actually tells us, this is what I want you to do. Have lots of sex. Did you know that? Did you know God said, hey, I want you as a human to have lots of sex? Did you know that? That's actually true. Who's ever told you that in church? Uh, I'm going to prove it to you by reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you guys know how that happens? We do. We know how that happens. What that means is have, and, and like have a kid is what he said. He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. AKA, I want you, humanity, to have lots of sex. Wow, who knew? Uh, Genesis chapter two, just in case you don't believe me or that's somehow wrong, uh, I'm gonna read you another thing. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 to 25, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every burst of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. Just, hmm. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, God, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, uh, and they shall become one flesh. You guys know what that means? I'll tell you. It means they should have sex. It's not, they should hug a lot. It means they shall hold fast they shall, so the Bible's a little sensitive. He's using, God's using euphemisms here, but he's saying they shall have sex. They shall become one flesh. And then, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Like this is, this is actually how things were created. Before anything bad happens, this was the world. Like that would have been nice, right? Just be naked, have lots of sex. That's life. That was actually what God said. Listen, this is from God. Have you ever heard God say, I want you to just be happy and be naked and have lots of sex? God said that. And I think, here's the thing, I think we've only heard and only embraced what not to do. And let's just remind ourselves, whose idea was sex? God's idea. Who created our bodies? God did. Who created all the parts of our bodies? Even the embarrassing ones? God created them. Who created the nerve endings in those parts of our bodies to make things feel a certain way? God did. Who made the chemicals in our brain to go firing during sex? God did. Literally, you guys, this was God's idea. And not just like his idea, he intricately designed it. It came from God. Just hear that. Just hear that. You need to know that sex is good and it's a gift from God. And he, it, like, we didn't have to multiply that way, right? We like, I don't know, could have been like Avatar and we put like our little hair together or something, you know, like, I don't know if you've seen that movie. You didn't have to make it like that. And he did. He made it the way that it is. So that's a fun point. God says, have lots of sex. Um, and then sadly, it was good for like two chapters of the Bible. And in chapter three, we decided to trust our own minds and do with our bodies what we wanted to do. And we rejected God and his word, which was for our flourishing. And from Genesis 3 on, which if you don't know that is, this is when we rebelled. God said, don't eat from this tree. We ate from the tree. Sex and everything else was broken and ruined for a long, long time, which is where we find ourselves. We were born into a broken, fallen world. And what was intended for good is now, has now been radically used for evil to wound and hurt and even bring death and disease. Like sex has been tainted. Sex has been tainted and that's the world we live in. And even in Genesis alone, the first book of the Bible, sex turns bad really quick really, really quick. Uh, there's a lot we can like guess about, but explicitly, the first thing we see is a husband and wife all of a sudden running and hiding from one another. Like that's sad. We see that. We see radical cultural sexual sin enough so that God destroys the world 
and the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see incest and rape in Genesis. We see sisters competing sexually for the same man who they're both married to. Like this is Genesis and we're seeing sex be used like horribly for harm to rip relationships and families and bodies apart. And that's just Genesis. There's some stories in the Bible you would not believe are there. Just read the book of Judges. You will, you, you maybe like would be disgusted with the Bible. Sex has been used to be radically, radically harmful. Um, but it in and of itself is not an evil thing. It's something God created, but sin takes it and distorts it. And so first point, the fun point, God says have lots of sex. The second point is this. Because you live in a fallen world, um, God the creator who created sex determines the life-giving limits of sex. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. God the creator, this is the point, God the creator determines the life-giving giving limits to sex. That's like a, uh, really? All of a sudden, it has boundaries. But why does it have boundaries? Because of the fall and because we just started ruining the world through this. And so God, out of love for his people, says, listen, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do because I love you and I want you to have life. And if you were here last week, sometimes uh, when God says something, we're not always gonna understand it. It's not gonna make sense. It may be radically different than the world we live in. And we're like, really God? Because I think I'm smarter. And the, the same point remains. God says it over and over again. I'm the Lord. I get to say what I get to say. I created you. I created your body. And even if this doesn't make sense to you, I am God. And my ways are not your ways. So that's an important thing to remember. But number two, listen, he created it and designed it. So he probably knows how it works, right? That makes sense. If someone creates something and designs something, you're going to know better than anybody else. Hey, it works well like that. It works well like that. The more someone comes up and is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that could be used for that. And the designer's like, no, you're going to break it. What are you doing? Like, I listen to the creator, the designer. A lot of times when we hear someone say, don't do this, or there's limits or there's boundaries, we tend to think like, man, that's frustrating. I just want freedom. Do you know what brings me most joy is freedom. I just want to be free. I want to do whatever I want to do. Do you know what you're like? I don't think I've said this here yet. You're like a little fish that looks up in the sky and sees birds and they're flying everywhere. And you look on the land and you see squirrels climbing and you're like, I'm sick of this water. I want to be free. And so you jump out of the water and you land on the shore and you're free from all boundaries of water. How are you doing now? You are dying. You can't breathe. You're like, you can't defend yourself. You can't swim away. You are going to experience death. Okay, now listen. What if God and his ways bring life? What if they bring life? What if he knows what life should be like? And we're like, I'm sick of these rules. I just want to be out there. He's like, really, you want to be out there? Okay, go ahead. And we're like flailing and barely alive. God's rules, because he designed them, knows how they work best. It may seem weird to you, but if you want sex advice, go to God who created it, who knows everything about it, who says this is how it's going to be great. This is how it's not going to be great. He's even written an entire book of the Bible on sex. Did you know that? Song of Solomon. Go read it. Pretty cool. Pretty like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to read this? Should be PG-13. Honestly, rated R. It's honestly rated R. 
Uh, so God knows. God knows his ways are not our ways. And not only that, you guys, not only does he know better, but God's commandments are life-giving. They, which means when we don't obey them, we fall into death. When we rebel, we experience death. When we, when we say, I don't want that, we are giving into death. That's what happened in Genesis 3. And that's what happens every time we think we're smarter than God. We experience death. But God says, listen, I want you to have life. Okay, so even just taking the verses in Leviticus, God essentially says no to three things in sex. He says no to incest, no to bestiality, which is having sex with an animal, and he says no to homosexuality. Those are the three big ones, okay? Uh, so here's, let's get practical real quick. Incest. God, why can't I like do that? That's not fun. Listen, if you have sex with your relative, it messes with the gene pool and you actually have a far higher chance of like birth defects. So like God knows what he's talking about. Uh, number two, this is interesting. Do you know why it's important for, it was important for God to say, hey, like if someone's raising your home, you can't sleep with them? It's because he wanted to create an environment at home where you're safe, where you're not like, oh my gosh, my brother's checking me out. Like I can't be comfortable here. God created the home to be a safe place. So that means like I'm not getting like hit on by my relatives. That's life-giving. God created a thing where he's like, I want home to be a refuge and safe. So there's no sex within your home. There's no sex within relatives. Bestiality, I mean, thankfully our culture doesn't embrace that yet, but like it's not good for you and it's not good for the animal. The diseases happen. And honestly, it's animal abuse. Like that's honestly what it is. It's sad we have to say that, but it's not good for anybody. And then homosexuality, okay. Now that is the unpopular and controversial one in Leviticus. And you've probably heard arguments of why Leviticus and what it says about homosexuality doesn't really say what it looks like. And that's fine. And so I want to say, actually, because this is a really important issue to our culture, um, and the church has done a really bad job with this issue, we're going to like slow down a little bit on homosexuality and do a few minutes on what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does Leviticus and the Bible and Jesus say about Christians and homosexuality? Okay, so here's the argument against homosexuality, or essentially against the prohibition of homosexuality in Leviticus. The argument for why Leviticus, you don't need to listen to it. Here's how it typically goes. Okay, we just read in Leviticus, don't breed two different types of cattle and don't round off the edges of your beard and don't make clothing with two types of fabric. And then right after that, we read, don't have, don't, uh, have sex if, with a man if you're a man or a woman if you're a woman. So don't you see that's a little inconsistent? Because we're like, oh no, of course I can like wear mixed cotton, but like homosexuality, no, no, no. That's a good argument. That's honestly a good argument to be logically consistent it seems as if there are things in Leviticus that don't make any sense that Christians ignore, but all of a sudden they want to hold on to homosexuality. Why is that? Now, listen, this is going to take a little bit of work, but there are three good answers for biblically faithful answers for the Christian and homosexuality, and I'm going to explain them right now. So the first one is this. There's a verse, Romans 10:4 says this. This is actually going to sound like it's in, it's in favor of not listening to Leviticus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so what does that mean? Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Basically, what the right point is, is when Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament completely. 
100% filled it. You don't have to obey it in order to be righteous anymore. That is not what the Old Testament is anymore. You are no more righteous if you obey it. You are no more less righteous if you don't obey it. That is right. We get that. That's why we don't have animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. That's why we don't have a temple anymore because Jesus tore the veil and we can be in his presence. And so some would say, so should we listen to the Old Testament rules about homosexuality? Because you just told me it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. That's a good point. But it is important to state that Jesus really did fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Really did. He fulfilled it. You don't have to go be righteous by doing anything that it says. That's true. The second way to think about this, the next step is this. People have said that um, the law, the Old Testament, all the rules in the Bible have three categories, okay? The first one is the civil law, which means essentially like your uh, government, your political people, civil. Number two, the ritual law or the ceremonial law, which is, has to do with sacrifices and being clean and all of those things. And then third, it's, there's a moral law, okay? This, I know this is a little complicated, but this is really important. If you really want to know about homosexuality in Leviticus, you have to listen. Those are the three things, civil, moral, and ritual. So civil law, Jesus fulfilled that, right? We're not Jews and we're not politically like the Jewish nation anymore. We know that. Jesus broke down that wall. We are probably all Gentiles and we can still belong to God. So the civil law is gone. The ritual law of all the sacrifices we just said, we no longer do all those rituals because of Jesus. Now the question is, what about the moral law? What about the moral law? What about when God says, don't kill people? What about when God says, don't, you know, Ten Commandments, that stuff? And there are honestly debates about that. How should we view morality in the Old Testament? Is that lumped in and was fulfilled with Jesus so we don't obey it anymore? Or does the moral law stand? And so when we read the laws in the Old Testament, we have to obey them. And to be honest, you guys, I think the answer is the entire law is fulfilled in Jesus. Now you're thinking. The whole law is fulfilled. I can now go like do all these things that we just read you shouldn't do. Cool. Now, listen, there's a third point, and this is really important. We've been given a new law called the law of Christ or the New Testament. Or when Jesus came, he taught us stuff. And even if we say Jesus fulfilled the entire Old Testament, Jesus says, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you, and guess what Jesus did? You're not going to like this. Maybe you will. Jesus took the moral law of the Old Testament and made it way stricter. That's what Jesus did. He says, you've heard it was said, don't murder. Yeah, that's reasonable. But I say to you, if you're even angry, you're guilty of murder. You're like, Whew. okay, so the Old Testament fulfilled, don't murder. But I can't even be angry anymore. He says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, you love your enemy. Like, Jesus, what are you saying? You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you are guilty of adultery. So Jesus took the moral law of the Old Testament and just like amplified it and made it more strict and more like, honestly, just Jesus, this is hard. This is really hard. He made it way more strict. And not only Jesus, the rest of the New Testament 
and all the teachings of the apostles, what the Holy Spirit used to finish the Bible, we see God take the moral law of the Old Testament, even if it's been fulfilled. We don't see a single thing in the moral law be replaced. All we see it is be deepened and strict and be made more strict. There is a law of holiness that stands if you want to be a Christian. And it's not the Old Testament Levitical law anymore. It's Jesus and the New Testament and how we see them reading the Old Testament and say, you still got to do that and some. So if you want to follow Jesus, here's the truth. You are called to be very, very holy and very, very strict in, in your sexuality. That's true. So let's say Leviticus doesn't have to, anything to say about homosexuality, which it does. And, and you can say, do you know what? All this is no longer binding for my righteousness. But guess who wrote this? God did. And guess who it teaches me about? God. And guess who it teaches me more about life? So this Old Testament as we've seen in Leviticus is extremely helpful. And we should keep reading it and it shows us things. Um, and then the rest of the New Testament just continues to make things harder and more clear on all kinds of sexual morality, including homosexuality. And since we're talking about homosexuality real quick. Um, I'm going to give us a couple points on what the New Testament and Jesus says about homosexuality. Uh, So when Jesus was questioned about sexual immorality in general, guess where he went? He went straight to Genesis 1. And he says, hey, you've heard it was said God created them male and female. He says, God created male and female and a husband shall leave his wife. And so Jesus affirms God's good design for what is marriage and what is the context of sex. It is a male and a female in a covenant relationship. So that, is, that stands. Jesus says that stands. And that's a big argument against homosexuality. It's a male and a female, a husband and wife coming together. And the two shall become one flesh. There's, there's a real thing, you guys, to God made males a certain way biologically and women a certain way biologically. And when they come together, they become one flesh and life happens. That, so God, or Jesus affirms the positive view. Number two, we see Jesus, he doesn't let up on sexuality. He makes it harder. He says, even if you lust, you're committing adultery. So Jesus is more conservative than the conservatives on sexuality. He says, you can't even lust um, and then number three, this is important. Do you know what marriage is actually all a symbol of? Have you heard this? Do you know what marriage is for? On the one hand, it's to like make many people to fill the earth. But God said marriage is a picture of him and his bride. Jesus says marriage is a picture of I'm like a husband and my people are like my bride. They're like my bride and they're precious to me. And though they've sinned and they've been wicked, I'm gonna come after them and I'm gonna woo them and save them and we're gonna have a marriage. And did you know if you're a Christian, the first thing you're gonna do when Jesus comes back, we're gonna have a marriage like in some crazy way. It's the marriage supper of the lamb and Jesus comes for his bride and we have this feast. And so if marriage and sexuality is about that, let let me say this. Is there room for Jesus to have like a woman on this side? Is there room for Jesus to not even have a bride, but to have a husband? Like, that doesn't make sense. Sexuality is a picture of Jesus and his bride, a a bridegroom and a bride coming together. That's what sexuality is all about. And it's really difficult to say that there's room for that picture for Jesus to also have another husband or another woman or a mistress on the side. That's not what marriage is all about. And so, 
you guys, honestly, the verdict on homosexuality, though the Old Testament laws are fulfilled, we see God's purposes still in the Old Testament, and we see the New Testament and Jesus say, hey, this is not okay. And there's, there are three or four really strong passages in the New Testament against homosexuality. They're really strong, and they're really clear, and you can't argue around them. Um, I'm just going to read you one. They're, they're pretty gnarly, guys. Um, I'm going to read Romans 1, 26 to 28. God's talking about the fall of humanity. And it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, a couple other points on homosexuality. It's clear from Genesis to Revelation what God's design is for marriage and sex, a husband and wife. It's clear that it's wrong. But here's an important thing. Here's an important thing. I'm going to talk about our culture. I'm going to talk about the church. Homosexuality is the same as every other sin. That's really important. So our culture says, no, 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 no. It's not. It's not a sin. And in fact, it's your identity. Our culture takes our desires, especially our sexual desires, and says, whatever your sexual desires are, that is your identity. That is who you are fundamentally to the core. You guys, that is a lie. Your identity is not your sexual desires. There is, that is not in the Bible. That is a lie from our culture. You are not defined by your desires. You're not. You're not defined by your wounds. You're not defined by what's happened to you. And you're not desi- defined by the desires you have right now sexually. That is not true. And then number two, the church, though, has also treated homosexuality in, in, in not its right place. So the culture takes it and says, oh, yeah, this is who you are. The church takes it and says, this is the worst thing you could ever do homosexuality. If you commit this sin, even in your heart, like you're wicked and evil. And like the church has historically been horrible to people who experience same-sex attraction and to people who committed this sin. And that's honestly, that's wrong. And that is not how Jesus was. And that's not how Jesus' followers are called to be. It is the same. All these passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's listed with thieves, greedy people, drunkards, Swindlers, idolaters, and sexual immoral people in general. You guys, there is no special place to homosexuality. Um, And so honestly, if you experience same-sex attraction, I want you to know, number one, like, you're welcome here. 100% welcome here. Number two, you're radically loved by Jesus. And number three, you're in the same boat as all of us because we are all sinners and we all have weird, sinful desires. We just do. Our desires have been broken by the fall. And if you experience that, welcome to the club. We are all broken here. And you are no more broken and no more unloved by Jesus and no more unable to be sanctified and made like Jesus. So if that's you, like honestly, sorry. Jesus loves you. And sorry that if you don't even feel comfortable to like say, yeah, that's what I experience. Like, you are safe here to share that. You're safe here. Um, so Leviticus has this giant list of what we can't do sexually. And it's really important to remember, and this is crazy, uh, 
the, the consequence of committing these sins in Leviticus is so heavy. Did you notice that? You commit adultery, you die. And then there were even some, it's like, it's so bad you get burned in front of everybody. Um, why is God so gnarly on sexual sin? Why is he so heavy? Like, if you commit this, you deserve to die. Um, and I think a couple things. Number one, death is a picture of what sin does. Death is a picture of what our sin does. All of our sin. The consequence of sin is death. In the garden, it brought death. Sin brings death to relationships. It does. Adultery kills relationships. It brings an end to relationships. Sin brings death to trust. Sin brings death to our relationship with God. Like sin brings death. And so God was communicating something. When you sinned, you will be killed in front of everyone because I want everyone to see God saying what sin does. That's what sin does. And thankfully, honestly, we no longer have to face the consequences of breaking the Old Testament law. Like honestly, we'd probably all be dead. We've all committed adultery. We'd all be dead. Um, So that's nice. And yet... Jesus says the punishment for our sin is worse than just you're going to be killed by your community. You guys, sin, our sin right now, our sin, the sin that we've committed warrants an eternal death. Your sin and my sin warrants hell. Be punished for our sin forever. And when Jesus was talking about lust, he like, he he connects lust and hell in like one sentence. He says, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better for you to enter eternity with one hand than to hell with two hands. Like that's how serious Jesus takes sexual sin. And, and the truth is like we are all in this room. We're all sexually broken. Every one of us is sexually broken. We're all probably sexually wounded in some way. Uh, and we're all, we have like this guilt of sexual sin in our hearts. Um, the Bible talks about us, we, you know that metaphor with Jesus and God and his bride. The Bible has some really heavy pictures of us and how we've been as a bride to God. Um, if you want to flip really quick to Ezekiel 16, I'm going to read a couple different verses from this whole chapter. Ezekiel 16 is, I mean, this is all kind of heavy, but it's one of the heaviest passages there are in the Bible. Um, and it's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor, it's a parable of us and God. And what God is saying is, um, when I found you, he's like saying this, this applies to you. When I found you, if you're Christian, God says, when I found you, you were like an abandoned baby. I'm going to sum it up and then we're going to read specifically verses 35 and on. But here's the summary. God says, when I found you and you were like a baby who was just born and was abandoned in a field. And maybe I think we've even talked about this. And he says, you're covered, when you're just born, you're covered in your blood. I mean, just, these are God's words. You're covered in your filth. It says your umbilical cord was not even cut. You're just a baby in a field. And that's a picture of life apart from God. That's, that's our state. And then God says, and I saw you and I had compassion on you. And I picked you up and I washed you off, and I cut your cord, and I put salt on you, like baby powder, and I clothed you, and I took care of you. God's saying, if you're Christian, that's what I did to you. I like saved you. 
you were helpless and I rescued you. That's what God did for you. And then he says, and I raised you and I took care of you and I fed you and nurtured you until, and this is gonna be a little weird, it's a metaphor, until you were the age for love. And then when you were the age for love and you were beautiful, I married you and you became my wife and I clothed you and I put jewelry on you and I anointed you with oil and you, were, you became like the crown of creation. Everyone looked at you and was like, well, that's someone who's loved by God. And you are radically loved by God. And then, do you know what we did after we've been loved by God? He says, then you took your beauty and your jewelry and your clothes and the food I gave you, and you began to cheat on me. And you began to offer those things to other lovers. And, and we would take this, this treasure that God's given us, and then we would offer it over here to other gods. We would offer it here to other idols. We'd offer it here to other desires. And we'd be like, yeah, thank you, God, for all your stuff. And then he says, you took that and you cheated on me. And then he says, it gets the next level. Not only did you cheat on me, he says, a prostitute gets paid for what she does, but you paid, you began to pay others for your sin. You took what was yours and you said, I'll pay you to come sleep with me. And then it says, and we had children together and you took the children that were mine and you offered them as sacrifices to false gods. God says that. And then in verse 34, I think he says, how sick is your heart? How sick is your heart? And honestly, like right now, like maybe right now you're like, man, my heart is sick. Like I, I feel that. I'm going to read a couple verses here, verse 35 to 39. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave them, therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. And I will bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and they shall break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. Wow. Here's what I need to say. Why is God doing that? We're gonna see it's because he loves his bride. And he wants to expose false lovers. And he wants to say, listen, I'm not going to let you run after other lovers. I'm not going to let you do that. I love you too much. I love you too much. And I will, in love for you, expose you and those lovers. And listen, we struggle with other lovers. We do. We struggle with loving other things and obeying what we want and rejecting God and taking God's good gifts and then using them for our own pleasure. And if God loves you, this is what he will do. He will expose those areas of your life. He will expose them. He will uncover the nakedness. He will do that because he loves you. And then look at verse 59. 59 to 63, God says this. After all that happens, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you 
an everlasting covenant. That's like a marriage. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and younger. I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Because what's the point here? Though we've been an unfaithful bride, listen, you have a faithful groom who loves you and will continue to love you and pursue you when you cheat on him and when you run from him and when you choose to use your body in ways that he says don't do that and when you choose to use everything else in your life that he's given you to pursue other lovers, he says, hey, and it's, it's really brutal what we've done and he says, and I still love you. I still love you and I am good and I will remain good to you. And our sexual sin and all our sin has uncovered our nakedness. Listen, sin brings shame. We know that. And embarrassment. Like we've ha- we have sin and it's like if, if people knew, I would be embarrassed and full of shame. And guess what Jesus does? He comes to us and he covers our shame. That's what Jesus does. To all the shame you have in your life, he says, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to cover you again. The first thing Adam and Eve did was ran away and hid themselves. And God says, stop trying to cover yourself. And he provided for them covering. And there's no more shame. And because Jesus died on the cross for you, and because Jesus died naked on a cross, he was naked on a cross, and he was ashamed, that act was on our behalf. And Jesus says, you come to me, I'll take your shame away. I'll experience shame. I'll experience all of your shame and you will be covered in my love and my righteousness. And you know what else? Our sin makes us feel dirty, right? We talked about that. Our, our sexual sin that we've done or that's been committed against us makes us feel unclean. And I'm gonna read to you this verse. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. When you come to Jesus, he washes all your sin away. And sanctification means you used to walk in sin and I'm gonna, I'm gonna change your life and I'm gonna make you different. And justified means you were guilty of your sin. And Jesus says, I'll be punished so that you will be justified. Do you know what justified means? It means you are standing in a court and you deserve guilt. And Jesus says, I'll take your guilt. And now you go free, completely innocent. You are innocent and justified before God right now. All your sin, all the things that you've done, if you come to Jesus, you will be cleansed and justified. And do you know what else Jesus does? This is amazing. Jesus redeems and restores your sexuality. Do you know that? He redeems and restores your sexuality. There's this woman who came to Jesus and she was a prostitute and uh, she fell at Jesus' feet. And do you know what Jesus called her? He said, daughter. 
Your faith has made you well, and I forgive you. And he blesses her, and he restores her. And some of you guys um, have committed or been committed against, like, many deep sexual sins. And I want you to know that, like, you're not ruined. You're not ruined. Jesus can restore you and heal you and will restore you and heal you ultimately. He removes your guilt and your shame, and he can even heal your scars and your past hurts. He, he actually can. He actually can. Shame that we feel, like Adam and Eve, he can cover your shame. Did you know some of the people closest to the Lord were radically sexually broken? You guys know about David? A man after God's own heart. Multiple wives essentially raped a woman because he was king. And God called him out on it and exposed him. And he repented and acknowledged his sin. He confessed it. He brought it in the light. And then he was healed by Jesus. And like, he's like sitting next to Jesus right now somewhere. Like, he can do that to you. He can restore your sexual sin. Listen, some of us, with sexual sin, this is what it feels like. It feels like addiction. And I've been there. Sin, often sexual sin, especially feels like addiction. And listen, I know what it feels like, but I want you to know that the forgiven sin is a broken sin. Did you know if you come to Jesus that you are not a slave to your sin? You're not a slave to your sin. You're not a slave to your desires. You're not a slave to chemicals in your brain. You're not a slave. You are free in the name of Jesus. Romans 6 says you are not a slave. You are, it's, that's literally true. That's just actually true. If you've come to Jesus, you are not enslaved to sin. And, and listen, I'll tell you what, the enemy wants to keep that shame and that sin and those wounds in the dark. That's what he does. Don't tell anybody. You're not going to be loved. Jesus isn't going to love you. Don't confess that. Don't bring that out. And we, you've heard this many times in confessing our sin. First to Jesus, we're forgiven. And to people, we are healed. And tonight, like, you're going to have an opportunity to confess your sin and your wounds and your scars and your shame and the things people have done against you and your desires you haven't told anybody, you have an opportunity to, number one, bring those to Jesus and be radically forgiven and restored and redeemed and forgiven and healed and set free. And then also to share them with one another. And there is real healing that comes when we share our sin. And then the last thing, and we, this came up about a month and a half ago, it was cool. It was a prophetic word in one of our prayer meetings. Some of you guys have this fear when we, we talk about sex. Like, what if I never have it? What if I never get to have sex? What if I never get to have a husband or a wife? Um, I want you to know that and as trite as this is going to sound, like, you're not missing out. Like, Jesus is better and is enough. And it's what marriage is all about anyways, like, I love my wife. We're not going to be married forever. I don't even get that. But Jesus is like, hey, you're not going to, in heaven, you're not going to be married. You're going to be having sex. And you're not going to be missing out. It's all a picture of Jesus and how good it is to be with him and in his presence. And so if that's like a fear of yours, listen, like, you're not missing out. You have Jesus, what it's all about. And so right now, we're going to come to Jesus, and we're going to sit before him. We're going to worship him. We're going to confess our sin to him, and he's going to remove our shame and, and our guilt, and he's going to cover that up, 
and he's actually able to love you and satisfy you. And so um, I just want to encourage us to come to Jesus. Like, don't miss out tonight. He is so good and he's so worth it. We're going to have prayer teams. Um, like, these people love Jesus and they just want to pray for you and with you. Um, just a reminder, like, you guys are able to pray and should pray for one another. Um, the last thing I'll say, and we said this last week, is a woman who's a, a woman of the city, radically sinful prostitute, she came into a guy's house, poured out like a year's wage, $50,000 on Jesus, and anointed him and wept and cried because she was radically sexually broken, but she knew there was hope for herself in Jesus. And she's a picture of what worship is. She's a picture of what worship is. And right now, like, we have these carpets and these chairs and communion. And like, I just want to encourage you, you've been forgiven and loved by Jesus like that woman. So come and worship Jesus. Come and pour out your heart, everything you have to him. He is worth it. Amen? Let me pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. Thank you for your love for us, for your compassion to us. Man, Jesus, we, we want to see what your word says, like sin brings death. It brings radical death. And so, we just say, Lord, lead us back to life. Would we not keep our sin in the dark anymore? Would we confess our sin to you and to one another? Would you even expose the areas that we're like cheating on you? Expose us, Lord, for our own good. Give us life. Save us from ourself and our desires, Lord. Thank you for how this all just points to you, Jesus. In some crazy way, like you you're better, you're our husband, and you're what satisfies us. And though we've been unfaithful, you continue to pursue us, and you're pursuing us right now. So would we respond to you? Would we not harden our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you come and move and let us worship you? Thank you for your love and for your blood, Jesus.